Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, December 14th. We talk about the proposed sale of Hawaiian Airlines to Alaska Airlines. The bombshell news is still starting to sink in, and customers aren't sure what to think. Good thing, bad thing, for the short and long term. We have representatives from both companies joining us today. It is round two for what is billed as the Hawaii Food System Summit. What lessons do we learn about our vulnerability during the pandemic, and what can we learn about what other states are doing to become more resilient? And for more than two decades now, the community has been gathering for the Makahiki on Kaho'olawe. We learn more about the story behind bringing it back. The conversation starts right after the latest headlines. Tune to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been a little more than a week since the deal was announced for Alaska Airlines to acquire Hawaiian Airlines for close to $2 billion. The sale still needs regulatory approval and could be a year and a half away. In the meantime, there's some nervousness over what that means for loyal Hawaiian customers who are wary of losing local control. This morning, we talked to Abby Manis, Chief Marketing Officer for Hawaiian Airlines, and Diana burkett Rakwell, Vice President for Public Affairs and Sustainability for Alaska Airlines. No one's really sure what to make of this deal. Saturday Night Live had a little fun with it this past weekend. Here's Colin Yost on Weekend Update. Alaska Airlines has announced plans to buy Hawaiian Airlines for nearly $2 billion. Alaska and Hawaiian combined will be called Technically American Airlines. <laughs> So we asked, Avi and Diana, what was your reaction to the mention on Saturday Night Live? For us, it was not every day that Hawaiian Airlines gets mentioned on Saturday Night Live, and we certainly wished it was a funnier joke, but we definitely talked about it. And it does sort of say how important airline transactions are in the world that these things get that attention. And what about you, Diana? What were your thoughts on, on your end? I agree. It's not every day we're on SNL either, although we, we did get a great mention a couple weeks ago about our uh, Stumptown coffee launch. But, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of pride just in sort of our our names being, uh, both of our airline names being out there and sort of the, you know, pop culture lexicon and, and uh, widespread conversation. I, you know, I think obviously the one thing they missed is just how proud we are in our independent names and brands and the places that they represent and the commitment for those to live on. So we'll keep talking about why that's important. You know, there's a benefit to having people be interested because you get to keep having the conversation. Yes. And so I think, you know, people aren't sure what to make of this deal, you know, and Avi, you know, let's talk about what you folks have been hearing uh, over this last week since the bombshell news. Well, I think, you know, a lot of people have had questions about it. First of all, I think there have been a lot of our customers who've recognized how positive this can be for them in terms of the ability to reach so many more destinations, to be able to continue to travel on the Hawaiian Airlines brand. And then lots and lots of questions about Hawaiian Miles and what that means for the Hawaiian Miles program. 
And Diana, what about you? What are you hearing from your customers? A lot of excitement from our customers, for sure, especially here on the West Coast, have a lot of respect for Hawaiian airlines, and many have flown Hawaiian to Hawaii. And just the idea of being able to bring these two brands and legacies together, I think, offers a lot of opportunity, besides the fact to extend the really complementary networks, you know, and guest experiences all the way from Asia to the East Coast and beyond, and then to complement that with the One World Alliance and global partners beyond. So I think we've heard a lot of excitement and a lot of, you know, a lot of questions, as there always is at this stage, but I think real support and hope for the for the future. Well, you know, we're just coming off of our membership drive, and we do offer Hawaiian miles, and, and I know that's been a big question uh, that a lot of our listeners have, is what happens to, you know, our frequent flyer miles? Yeah, so I think the most important thing for people to know is that this we've announced this transaction, but that it takes some time to go through the process. And so for now, nothing changes at all. But when the transaction closes and sometime after that, when we bring together the two loyalty programs into a single program, we can't say exactly what that's going to look like right now, but people should know that their Hawaiian miles that they earn today, whether they're flying with us or uh, using our credit card, will continue to have value that will be carried over into a combined program. Their status that they earn on us will continue to be honored. And I think people, I hope, will see that the idea of a loyalty program that brings together what's great about both airlines will give people even more value in the future. Well, you know, I couldn't help but think when I saw that clip uh, on SNL, you know, about branding because, uh, you know, both CEOs made uh, much of that during the announcement, right? Uh, they just realize how loyal people are to the Hawaiian brand and the Alaska brand. Absolutely. I think both of our airlines benefit from incredible loyalty and brand pride and love. And that's broad and deep, but it's also deeply rooted in the places that, you know, are the names that are on our aircraft and, and in our brand. And so I think we are both committed to keeping both brands and bringing them together in a way that honors both of those legacies and both of those loyalty bases. The details of that, you know, we ha- we haven't done this before in our industry. And so it's both really exciting, but also there's a lot to figure out. We're clear that, you know, there's two distinct liveries that will coexist and brand identities on digital properties and in airports elsewhere and really important elements of the guest experience from both brands. And then there are some common, I think, themes that run through how both of our airlines treat guests in terms of warmth and hospitality and care. And so the question is, how do you put those together in a a really compelling way? We will be one team behind those two brands, one set of union groups, one team powering the airline, and one single operating certificate. So it'll be a, I think, interesting and exciting journey to figure out how to bring those together. Well, there is some, you know, hand wringing because of our history with airlines here in the islands, and and we know, you know, it it, it can be fragile. We've go, gone through some tough times, you know, watching Aloha go under, uh, and and it's been rough. And we did, you know, I think, you know, root for Hawaiian because we went through a time where it was, you know, Hawaiian always late, right? H A L, and then we saw the company turn things around, and you had, you know, the the best on time record. And so to know that, you know, the company that Hawaiian Airlines has just had a really tough time coming out of this pandemic because the Japanese market hasn't come back. And and that's where, you know, a lot of the expansion was. 
for those routes. The whole industry has had a, a bit of a tough time. We're not an industry that's designed to expand and contract quickly. I think that the cool thing is that the DNA of both companies is you know, strong commitment to safety, strong commitment to operational excellence. And I think that positions us really well together. One thing just to clarify on the brand, you know, I, I know that um, I think there's a lot of excitement about the idea of keeping a brand. There's a lot of wait and see to make sure we really do. And, you know, that's that's fair and that's appropriate to make sure that we continue to uphold that commitment. The one thing that is clear in our uh, company and how we approach this is that it it is a different business model going forward. It is a two-brand or multiple brand and business model going forward. And that's a concrete shift in how we are approaching things. And I think a really exciting one. Avi? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, the, you know, knowing intimately the history of uh, aviation in this market, it is something that we, that we think about. And we are very proud of the legacy of Hawaiian Airlines. And I think we view this transaction as a way to build a stronger Hawaiian Airlines for the future of Hawaii. We exist in a very, very competitive global business where size and reach really matter. And the idea of preserving the brand and what people love about Hawaiian Airlines and the way that we serve this community, but doing it as part of a much stronger platform, I think, helps us avoid some of the challenges that other airlines in this market have faced over time. So I do think that this is different than the path that other local airlines have taken over time, but hopefully a more positive way out into the future. Well, I know folks were saying during COVID that you folks were hemorrhaging, you know, millions uh, every day. And uh, to know that, you know, you've got uh, this big debt uh, that is, you know, holding the airlines back, I think is maybe startling to some because people don't want to think that you would, you know, go under. I I think it's important to to reinforce that we don't believe that that's the future for us. And with or without this transaction, you know, we have seen we've been slower to recover from the pandemic because of some of the very specific impacts in the markets that we serve. But we still feel very good about the fundamentals uh, of our business. And we're continuing to invest in growth in our fleet and improvements to our product that we think are going to make us even more competitive as markets like Japan start to come back. And so while it's certainly been a difficult few years, we're not doing this because we think this is the only alternative available to us. We're doing it because we think this is uh, going to make a better, more competitive airline for Hawaii. Just to underscore that, one thing I think that is exciting about this, particularly for our employees, is that both airlines have really strong organic growth plans and airplane books of business. And airplanes are obviously how we grow. And so we've got the ability to bring those two organic growth plans together for that stronger future. We've been hearing from the marketing and public affairs chiefs for both Hawaiian and Alaska Airlines about the proposed sale that was announced less than two weeks ago. We'll continue our conversation right after a short break. I'll be the one you want to hire, hire. I'll be the one you never fire, fire. Making plans together to retire, tire. Until my dying day, I will be there for you. I'll be the one you wanna hire, hire. I'll be the one you never fire, fire. Making plans together to retire, tire. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Trevi Johnson, the author of Fierce Consciousness. 
Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about surviving tough challenges, both personal and planetary. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, with info sessions for the 2024 Distance Learning Executive MBA and Master of HR Management, scheidler.hawaii.edu slash executive. to our conversation with Avi Manis and Diana Burkett-Rackall, who manage the marketing and public affairs for Hawaiian Airlines and Alaska Airlines, respectively. We've been discussing the proposed sale of Hawaiian to Alaska. We did just talk to Mufi Hanneman, head of the uh, Lodging and Tur- Tourism Association, and just yesterday was named head of the uh, Hawaii Tourism Authority Board. He thought that the deal was good you know, for balance going forward. You've got the union contracts in place, and you've got to work out the details for the non-union workers, obviously. But he thought that it was a, a positive. Yeah, I think as a, you know, as a community that is dependent on air service for our economy, I think that having a stronger airline that serves the community, that is committed to neighbor island service, that have has, has a, a network with broader reach is something that is going to be really positive, both in terms of the contribution to the economy and also investment in the community. And Hawaiian had some hiccups with its reservation system. You know, if the two companies do merge or do fold into each other, then how does that work? I mean, uh, have, have there been discussions yet about whether that system is compatible or would you go with Alaska's? This is going to take, you know, 12 to 18 months, and we've been saying to go through all of the appropriate reviews to get to close and the state in which we are a combined airline. And that gives us time to really get under the hood and understand each other's systems, compatibility, pros and cons of each, you know, not just with regard to reservations, with regard to many other things. So I think all of that work is to come, and uh, we're looking forward to it. Avi? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There are things that that both companies do really well, and this is an opportunity to go through a process of learning and understand how we're going to bring the best of those things together into the combined company. So I take it then they are two completely different systems and and they're not compatible. I don't know what talks you might have had uh, about this aspect of the business. Yeah, the reservation systems are separate, and, you know, there are probably a lot of You know, airlines are very complex businesses with lots of technology behind them. And so I think we'll have to go through a a pretty rigorous process to understand, you know, how to bring the two together. And then when it comes to branding, what happens with the food contracts? Because, you know, Hawaiian does offer uh, local products, you know, and I know uh, I probably wouldn't have tried uh, the uh, rum punch, you know, had it not been for Hawaiian Airlines offering it. And, you know, now I go and look for it when I go to Long's or Costco. So uh, can you speak to those kinds of things, you know, because you've got a relationship with the local vendors here. Yeah, that's been incredibly important to us over time and thinking about how we can not just, you know, serve the needs of our own business, but also help to build up other local companies and help build audiences for them. That's a great example of something like that. We're going to have to go through a similar process where we go through everything we do and figure out how to bring those things together. I don't want to speak for Alaska, but I know they also have a real commitment to to local sourcing as well. The thing that 
kind of related to local sourcing and, and you know, vendor contracts and all of those things are part of that process we'll go through to figure out kind of what's right for the combined future. But just to the point about buying local, just two things to say about that. One, as part of the conversations around what is what is this combined airline going to look like and what are the things that we are going to sort of say now to make sure that they're clear for the future, one of those is solidifying and adopting a clear commitment to local sourcing that Hawaiian has had and that we're going to make sure is, is the case going forward. Alaska is, as Avi said, um, also committed to buying local. We've got California wine and beer from the various microbreweries across our communities and Portland coffee. And, you know, A, it's the right thing to do from uh, economic development and elevating businesses across our communities. But also it enhances the brand. It's, you know, a cool part of the experience. And it's been really fun to figure out different tastes and flavors from across the various communities that we serve. And we're just excited about the opportunity to expand that. And Avi, I don't know what you can say, you know, because some might look at other possible suitors out there and might think that, yeah, Alaska might be a better fit than Southwest or uh, some other airline that might want to swoop in. Well, it is. It's hard to think of, a, of an airline that, that it's a better fit for us if we were to combine. And, and, and you know, I think that's, you know, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the networks are so complementary. So there's very little overlap where, you know, Hawaiian and Alaska are the, the only operators on a given route. And, and in fact, what it does is open up so many more destinations to people across the two networks, as you think about going from somewhere on the mainland to Hawaii to Japan. So there's a lot of complementarity of network. And there's a lot of complementarity of culture, too. Again, you know, you have two airlines that, have, that are born from serving air-dependent communities in isolated states in the United States. And there's just so much in common. I think that we're still going through the process of getting to know each other and discovering that. But we continue to discover new ways in which there is a lot of commonality in what we do. And for the Hawaii customers out here who may not be familiar with Alaska's strengths, Diana, what can you tell us about, you know, your plans to expand and, you know, where you want to go? Well, we have had a sort of longstanding trajectory of sort of greater than industry average organic growth. As a small airline, as Avi mentioned, that's a really important part of our trajectory to give our to give employees opportunities to enhance the offerings for our guests. And a couple of years ago, we were thrilled to join the One World Alliance to sort of enhance that with a broader global presence. And the benefit of One World, um, just to sort of take a quick sidebar there, is as a loyalty member of our airline, you then get the ability to earn and redeem miles on a broader array of airline partners. And actually for us, that includes airlines even outside of One World as well. And you have your elite status. When you get to an elite status, that's recognized on these partner airlines. So it really opens up your ability to fly a variety of different carriers around the world. And they're a really neat group of carriers because in many cases, they're the flag carriers of countries around the world. And so you get to experience different cultures and, you know, almost have your trip start the moment that you get on board. And so this opportunity to combine with Hawaiian is it's very, I don't know, uh, kind of organic and, and logical in that we have had a deep regard for one another over the years. We've often worked together on policy issues in D.C., and we really understand what it takes to serve air-dependent communities 
Alaska has done that for a long time in the state of Alaska, serving 19 communities, only three of which are accessible by road. And so we're, you know, really honored to accept the responsibility of continuing to serve uh, neighbor islands the way that Hawaiian has for a long time with the combined airline. And I think it's just going to be really exciting to offer Hawaii-based travelers more opportunity to travel through the continental U.S. and beyond, and then to be able to offer West Coast travelers and other travelers in the continental U.S. more access to Asia and the South Pacific through Hawaii. And Honolulu will be our second largest hub in the combined airline, which is great from the standpoint of, you know, preserving those union-based jobs and preserving a great set of support jobs as well to make sure that that network continues to thrive. And then, Avi, do you know how this might change Hawaiians' long-term plans? Because at one time you folks were thinking about, you know, the long-haul flights, say, like to Paris. Yeah, well, I think, you know, again, you know, the combined entity will have a lot more uh, reach to go to get different places. We can't say specifically what those network plans are, but from a, a long-term perspective, we're continuing to make investments in the product. So our 787 aircraft, which will be our new flagship aircraft, will still be arriving early next year, and people will get to fly on that next year. We're continuing to uh, continuing our process of installing Starlink Wi-Fi on all of our long-haul fleet, and so that will launch early next year. And so we're continuing to invest in the future of this brand and this business as we go through the process of combining with Alaska. That was a conversation we had this morning with Hawaiian Airlines Marketing Chief Avi Manis and Alaska Airlines Public Affairs Executive Vice President Diana Burkett-Racco. We were talking about the proposed $2 billion sale of Hawaiian to Alaska Airlines. The deal is expected to take about 18 months to go through the regulatory process, and more public input will be solicited before it's finalized. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we are taking flight through aviation history. With the upcoming holiday season, many of you may be planning some form of air travel to visit family or on another island or on the continent. Uh, That kind of trip may seem routine in modern day life, but decades ago, travel by plane was not so common. Although planes have been landing in Hawaii since the early 20th century, it was not until many decades later that air travel became fast, comfortable, and affordable. That slow evolution began in the 1930s with the first commercial flight into Hawaii that utilized a fleet of flying boats known as clippers that could land on water. The first to arrive was captained by Edwin C. Musick and carried the first shipment of mail to our islands. Hours later, the plane was taken to a Navy hangar at Pearl Harbor and put on display for the public. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of that airline and the exact destination of that first commercial flight? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets the prize.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. kicks off the second Hawaii Food System Summit, where stakeholders across the state are gathering to talk about how to become more resilient in the face of the sobering experience of both economic and natural disasters in recent years. Recovery is still very much underway, but food equity and sustainability underscores the need to do better to boost agriculture and policies around food systems. We talked to Albie Miles, Associate Professor of Sustainable Food Systems at the University of Hawaii at West Oahu. We're going to be talking about what are systemic solutions to some of these issues that we're not going to fix through local agriculture like long-term household food insecurity or food system resilience and disaster preparedness. So there's a lot of different potential bills that would come in front of the state legislature this session that are going to attempt to tackle some of these long-term issues. And that's what we want to have conversations about. What are these bills and make sure that the constituents who show up to this event are aware of them and then they can you know, go back to their constituencies and inform them of whether or not they may want to support these ideas. Well, what was the intention when you folks organized this food summit last year? Well, it was a similar orientation and objective. You know, our primary focus of this summit is to, to bring people together from, from across the islands to evaluate food and agricultural policy and get people aware and prepared to weigh in, you know, for or against some of the policy initiatives that are being put forward. So last year we went through a process of discussing these different policy ideas and went through a a ranking procedure to determine what all these constituents thought were the most important bills that this group of people may want to back along with their their uh, constituents back from where they came and um, really get people to turn out to to provide testimony and support or against some of these ideas. So we, I think, accomplished that goal significantly. And here we are, having gone through last session where there was a lot of very strong legislation that was put forward, but a significant number of those very progressive food policies were not passed. And so we want to see the introduction of a lot of these older bills and the introduction of a couple of new ones that we think will really address some of these longstanding issues in the food system of Hawaii. Well, what are some of the barriers that you see? Well, I think there's a couple of things. There's, I think, a lack of understanding of the pressing need to address some of these issues. I think some of our representatives are not fully aware of you know, how many people in the state are food insecure, including uh, households with children that are food insecure coming out of the, you know, the pandemic. I think we have yet to really understand thoroughly what was the impact of a lack of disaster preparedness as a result of the Lahaina wildfire. So I think some of this is a lack of awareness and information about these pressing food system issues. And then I think the other element is just making sure that voters, uh, citizens across the, the islands, 
are aware of these bills coming before the state legislature. So the, the summit is really intended to raise the profile of these different bills coming in front of the legislative session this 2024 season and making sure that those people who are concerned about food and agricultural policy in Hawaii have an opportunity to weigh in. Well, we've seen lots of uh, grants being made available to encourage indigenous knowledge, you know, when it comes to dealing with food deserts, you know, and resiliency, particularly with climate change, you know, whether it's looking at the fish ponds or limu, we want to see, I guess, some results, right? You you, want to see, you know, what are the baby steps that will get us, you know, toward becoming uh, more resilient communities. That's right, and I think you you raise an important point. There's not one silver bullet when it comes to building resilience in Hawaii's food system. It's a it's a multi pronged approach. It's everything from biocultural restoration, which you you mentioned, but it's also household emergency preparedness. It's raising awareness about the need for household emergency preparedness. It's having coordinated plans between the public sector, like the Hawaii Emergency Management and our county emergency management agencies and the private sector who can actually store and distribute food in times of natural disaster. So I think one of the key objectives of this conference will also be the discussion of a need for a larger overarching food system plan and strategy to systematically address some of these long-standing issues because there is no one silver bullet. We have to think about kind of a comprehensive and systemic approach to addressing some of these issues. And of the bills that you had mentioned, did we pass anything that was uh, game-changing or, or what are your hopes for this session? Nothing passed last legislative session that was game-changing. This legislative session, the thing that I am tracking with the greatest amount of interest is the idea of a state level food system plan or charter process and that would be something that would be potentially co-chaired by the department of agriculture the office of planning and sustainable development and other state agencies and that would be to articulate a comprehensive food system plan or charter for the state that would address everything from household food insecurity to biocultural restoration to climate change adaptation and mitigation local economic development, public health and nutrition, et cetera. And so that's when I think the, going back to your question about what are some of the structural obstacles, one key obstacle is we don't have a plan and we don't have a planning process in place. And so this bill last year was introduced as House Bill 308. It'll be revised this year and intended to really launch this state level food system planning process. Well, I know when we talked to the uh, new director of uh, the Agriculture Department, Sharon Hurd, you know, her big thing is, you know, we need to grow what we eat and eat what we grow. Um, And so that's on her radar. But I guess that may be well intended. But, yeah, how do we actually start rolling these out in these communities, whether they're, you know, micro communities or, or pods where we can store things or, you know, convincing communities and neighborhoods to plant ulu trees, things that we, we eat and we will need if, if uh, a storm mm-hmm. comes or if a road, road goes out. Yeah, I think it's a very laudable goal, of course, to optimize local agriculture. And that's, that's really the, the responsibility of the Department of Agriculture. But agriculture is not really capable of serving all the functions that we may conceive of it uh, serving. So, you know, the Department of Agriculture doesn't have as a mandate to build food system resilience 
or equity in the, in the food system of Hawaii. And so that, that's going to require other agencies and other strategies to really buttress the food system to achieve those goals. So um, I, again, it takes a multi-pronged strategy and we need to step back and think about this and come at it with a range of solutions that we can advance through private sector investment, through PPPs, through you know public policy. So there is no one solution. It's a multi-pronged strategy for addressing all of these different issues. Is there anything on the horizon that we should be mindful of? There's a lot of federal dollars that are left on the table in terms of the Supplemental Nutrition and Assistance Program that could really help uh, families here in Hawaii that are struggling with household food insecurity. So really, you know, promoting low-income households and accessing those federal dollars, and those dollars would be circulated in our local economy. I think that's one. The other is, again, the, the state-level food system planning process, I think, is very important. 18 states on the continent have state-level food system plans or charter to direct the development of their food system to reach a range of social, economic, and environmental goals. And those are, you know, those are just a few that I would put forward as important, larger-scale opportunities that we should be tracking. Uh, that was Associate Professor Albie Miles talking about the Hawaii Food Systems Summit that kicks off today at the UH West Oahu campus. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Today on The Daily, what a high-profile abortion case in Texas revealed about one of the big fights in the U.S. abortion wars since the fall of Roe, about the question of who can get exempted from an abortion ban. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, featuring LEED certification services for residential and commercial building projects. Learn more at greenbuildinghawaii.com. It's now time for the reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Paula Dobbin does a deep dive into a player on the housing scene in Maui. Good morning. Good morning. So who is this developer, Paul Chang, and, and what prompted you to do this deep dive in his background? Um, well, he's a Texas-based developer um, who is going before the Maui County Council asking for about $50 million uh, to subsidize an affordable housing project that he wants to build north of Lahaina. He's already gotten 18 million from the county for infrastructure subsidies, and you know now he wants this other large amount. 
Um, so we just decided to look into him. Uh, what's it, who is this guy? Um, you know, came across an old Maui News article that said he had been uh, exonerated of financial crimes he committed back in the 80s. So um, it just seemed intri- like an intriguing potential story, so we just started looking into it. Yeah, I mean, this was a while ago, but it is cause for concern when you've got someone who's, you know, working on projects worth millions of dollars. Um, well, I mean, you know, everybody um, who has served time, you know, deserves to go on, and, and he hasn't apparently, you know, done anything wrong since he got out of jail, but he was in prison uh, between 1991 and 1997, um, and it was a high-profile case um, it was during the SNL crisis of the 80s and 90s that you might recall. Um, and so, um, you know, he, he did go to prison, and um, I think what was more interesting was the fact that a lot of people I spoke to in Maui didn't know anything about his background, uh, including people on the county council, um, other bodies that he's gone before uh, here in Hawaii. Um, so, you know, he certainly doesn't make it known that he has this um, this background, but he also spins it to say that he was exonerated, but we didn't find anything in the public record to, um, to indicate that. And we asked him to uh, produce documents that would prove that he was exonerated, and those were never forthcoming. Yes, I mean, you went looking through those court records and and checking with the um, uh, attorneys, the prosecutors in the case, and and what was the upshot? What did they tell you uh, about what they had? Well, you know, it is an old case, um, but, you know, on the other hand, he did go to extraordinary lengths to try to get his conviction overturned and, you know, failed at that. Um, He appealed it to the Fifth Circuit. They did throw out um, or reverse one of the counts, but they affirmed the rest. So he initially had a 30-year prison sentence. Um, That got reduced because uh, the appeals court found that one of the counts was, um, you know, it was duplicated. So, um, but he went all the way to the Supreme Court to try to get them to reverse his conviction, and they declined to hear the case. He asked President George Bush for a presidential pardon. Um, President Bush turned that down. So, you know, he, he definitely was trying to, you know, rewrite history to a certain extent and seems to continue to be doing that. Yeah. So, you know, he is up before the council asking for um, a, a public funding. Um, so it's fair game to kind of look to see, well, what's his track record? I mean, but he has had um, successful projects, uh, like you mentioned, uh, on the mainland as well. Yeah, I mean, as far as we can tell, based on press releases and some articles in the Dallas Morning News. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's just he certainly hasn't mentioned his background to people here, it seems. And, and again, you know, treat, tries to spin it in a way that um, is not supported by the public documents we were able to see. Right, and and he wasn't forthcoming in anything to to uh, to, to verify that information either. No, we gave him lots of chances. He wouldn't even talk to us on the phone. It was just through email, and he had his lawyer, you know, send us a warning letter saying that, you know, we better be careful with the way we're writing the story and things like that. So it was an interesting experience. Um, You know, hopefully people will read the story and and comment and just be aware of it, you know. All right. Well, it was very interesting. But thank you so much, Paula. You bet, Catherine. Take care. And that was Paula, a reporter, Paula Dobbin, with today's Reality Check. You can read the deep dive at silverbeat.org.
it's time to land. Today's answer to the backyard quiz. As we take modern-day aviation for granted, it may surprise you to learn that the first commercial flight to Hawaii opened to the general public in 1935. It was a 16-hour flight from Los Angeles, staggered by today's uh, staggering by today's sta- uh, standards. And that route now takes about five hours. Back then, the cost of a flight to Hawaii was also overwhelming for most people, about $500. That would equate to almost 9000 in today's dollars. These early flights were accomplished using the Martin Flying Boat, a.k.a. the M-130. Its ability to land on water made it ideal for uh, accessing remote Pacific islands without large, well-maintained airfields. And that is exactly what Pan American Airlines did on its multi-layover route from San Francisco to Manila, which included a refueling stop in Honolulu's Kei Lagoon, which were the answers to today's backyard quiz. The deep channels carved into the reef for the flying boats at Kei Lagoon can still be seen today. We had no winners, but we had lots of callers trying to get to share the right answers. That is today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Aloha, this is Liberty Peralta, Senior Marketing Director at HPR. Thank you for supporting HPR during our recent membership campaign. We received a little over $302,000 in contributions from 879 members, including 201 new members from across the islands and beyond. With your support, you can hear the difference. Mahalo for supporting HPR. It's been a big year for music. From the rise of Mexican regional music to country music's staying power, 2023 has shown just how varied the pop landscape has become. And my guests say this variety is a huge benefit. Music is better than ever. That's a big claim. Breaking down the big trends and best albums of 2023. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Kahiki on Kaho'olawe. For more than two decades, members of the Native Hawaiian community have uh, made it a point to observe the cultural practice on the island that used to be a bombing target for the military. HPR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactel joins us to talk about why this year was special. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so, so tell us about this uh, observance. So Makahiki on Koho'olawe was revitalized in 1982. And just a little refresher on the history, as you mentioned, the U.S. Navy used the island as a bombing range between 1941 and 1990, so it was pretty much left demolished after that. <laughs> and um, as part of the effort to revitalize the island and bring green growth back and just that spiritual vitality that had been lost um, 
books have been going back every year since then. Um, and makihiki was traditionally observed on every island, and a lot of times as we know it, it's in the form of makihiki games or other uh, celebrations. But what's observed on Kaho'olawe is really the religious ceremonies and traditions, again, to uh, open the ceremonies in usually late November and really bring those life forces back to the island. So residents from across Hawaii come together on Kaho'olawe to open and close Lono Ikamakihiki each year because the island doesn't have residents of its own to do the ceremony there. And Davion McGregor is Professor Emerita at UH Manoa, a kupuna of the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana, and a life partner of the late Dr. Noah Emmett Aluli. The protection and healing of the island, stopping the abuse of the island and its healing was the main goal of, of the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana through the practices of Aloha Aina. And integral to that was calling back our gods, our, our deities, into the lives of our people through, through Kaho'olawe and then calling them back to help in that process of healing the island. There had been forms of makahiki observances on the islands in makahiki games and makahiki gatherings. But what is different about the Kaholave makahiki, which then spread to other islands, is to conduct the religious ceremonies to acknowledge these natural life forces and entities as gods and deities. In January of 1982, we conducted the first makahiki what was distinct about the 1982 ceremony on Ko'olawe was that we again called upon our spiritual entities to renew the land, something that hadn't been done or had been suppressed for generations. And, you know, I, I'm sure that uh, as folks, you know, returned to Ko'olawe, they had, you know, uh, Dr. Uh, Emmett Aluli in mind, you know, because he just passed about a year ago. He did. November 30th marked uh, a year of his passing, and he, of course, was instrumental in protecting Kaho'olawe, forming the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana, and bringing back the Mahiki Games to the island. So he was certainly uh, on the minds of all who, who were there this year. Kanoi Lani Davis is a Moloka'i resident and cultural practitioner. She doesn't consider herself a Mahiki expert, but she did talk about the experience of participating. She's been going on and off since 2008 to the island, and it involves camping for five days on an island without any type of infrastructure. You have to pack everything in and out that you need for those five days. This year she made the journey with uh, two of her daughters, and as she describes, just the preparation in itself is intense. You're carrying all of your gear. That means your tent. That means your boots your tubbies, that means your swim gear, your clothes. We have to bring a big dry bag full of um, your tent, your tarps, your ropes, your knives, all the things that you need. So you're already at probably about 50 pounds at that point. We're getting up at three in the morning to then pack all the boats up with all of our gear to get to island. And we're catching the boat to Hakioava. We get into Hakioava and it's jump off the boat, swim all your gear in, and we pass it to each other to help one another. It's a collective space. It's beautiful. 
And then we're carrying all that gear into the valley so that we have it readily available. And then we're setting up tents and starting our five-day passage. Yeah, and you know, I've been fortunate to visit there, and it is an ordeal. It really is. It is. There's, uh, you know, folks have been working every year to to plant and to uh, re-green, as they say, uh, but it's certainly not a lot of... Um, infrastructure and and support for folks who are going over although it has improved i hear a lot in recent years dr kaliko baker is kumo olelo hawaii at uh manoa and he's also a mo'olono which is a keeper of makahiki ceremonies ensuring that those protocols and chants are carried forward properly he's a third generation mo'olono that began with dr aluli and usually 20 to 40 people go to celebrate and so it's it's a role to uh, again lead those those ceremonies baker says participating in makahiki on kaholave is a lot of work we get there and you know it's set up camp wind blows kiabi trees thorns we got to clean trails because we're going to be walking barefoot on the trails so you know you got to make sure everything is nice and then you know you got to get into separating out the kapu from the noah, right? The sacred from the mundane. These places are kapu, no go there. And um, that's where we take care of all the, the things that are ceremonially dedicated. And then we hike up to Mooliki to, to pull on the proverb, you better have eaten your Wheaties. That's all I got to say. You're going up to Mooliki and back, I clocked that at 10 miles on my iWatch. <laughs> that's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, and, you know, Kaho'olawe you know, still has some unexplored ordinance that has not been cleared. So, you know, folks do have to be careful. It's true, and just thinking about making these long hikes barefoot, um, it really uh, brings to mind the importance of, of clearing those trails, as he was talking about, and making sure that there's no thorns and rocks that would uh, damage their feet as they walk. Everything is, is steeped in protocol, and, uh, you know, hearing about some of those traditions uh, that take place there every year uh, was something that, you know, I, I wasn't aware of. Um, and I've heard various versions of how to tell when makahiki begins. So I asked Baker. How do you know when the makahiki starts? There was this story, right? You know, they say something about, oh, when makahiki rises at sunset and the next full moon is when makahiki starts. I'm just like, bro, where can you see that? Where is that vantage point? So we were going by that for a while because that was the that was what was available in English. Now we have people who speak Hawaiian. And what do people that speak Hawaiian do? They go and read Hawaiian text. And everybody that writes in Hawaiian about when the Makaliki starts doesn't talk about this. Oh, when the, when the sun is setting and Makaliki rises in the east, that is when the Makaliki starts. There's none of that. What you find is specific nights of the Kaulana Mahina where the Makahiki starts. In the month of Ikua, which generally correlates with October for the South Kona folks, now Molokai is going to be different or Oahu going to be different, right, for, for the month of Ikua. On the, the Hua nights, when the moon starts to get big and full, that's when the Makahiki ceremonies really begin. Hmm. Full moon, nice. It's interesting. So we think of Makahiki as normally starting uh, in late November and closing in January or February. So we are right in the middle of the Makahiki season, and it's celebrated in in so many ways across Hawaii and, as we know now, uh, including 
All right. Well, thank you for sharing this story uh, and sharing uh, something that our listeners may not be aware of. But thanks so much, Catherine. Mahalo. That was our Maui Nui reporter, Catherine Kluwet-Pactel, talking about the Makahiki celebrations on the island of Koho'olawe. You can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. That does it for us today. Up tomorrow for our Aloha Friday show, we have a Hanaho on staff picks for conversations that we've had recently about films with ties to Hawaii. Call our talkback line for story ideas or input at 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for the conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast store or on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>